is so important. We now say mindset eats culture for breakfast. You cannot talk about culture without first talking about mindset. And there are four archetypal dimensions of mindset. They are awareness, agility, relatedness, and courage. Welcome to Messy and Magnificent, the place driven women come to elevate their career, health, and relationships. In here, we increase your productivity by replacing always being busy with the space to breathe. Hear your own wisdom and be part of a sisterhood that has your back. My name is Carly Fain, and together we're going to make sure that you have a doable plan and the roots to rise. Why, hello again. It's your gal Carly. Welcome back to Messy and Magnificent, or if you're joining me for the first time, come on in. The water's warm. We have a great episode for you today. So if you have listened before, you might have heard me talk about this phenomenon that I see a lot within my coaching practice as I work with all of these different career-motivated women from all over the world. We've coined it popular isolation. Now, when I say popular isolation, what I'm referring to is this interesting phenomenon for motivated women where you might have great friends or good family or good coworkers. You love them. They love you back. And yet you feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders and nobody really gets you. And they certainly don't have any idea how much it takes to be you all day long. And so they celebrate you for what a great job you're doing. And yet you're never fully impressed because you know you're capable of more. But when are you supposed to get to that, right? You've already got plenty on your plate. Now, as I work with all of these women one-on-one, each woman thinks it's just her. That feels this way. And it's really perplexing, especially when you're with a sea of people. And even right now, that might be a sea on Zoom. And to still feel like there's some type of connection or camaraderie or support or understanding that's lacking. Now, we all knew that meaningful human connection was important. But if COVID has taught us anything, it's how much we value our ability to be in community with other people, which is exactly why we started Nesting and Magnificent over a year ago. Now, today's guest is going to give us information about why that popular isolation phenomenon is so common. He's going to talk about what he calls the solo hero, and I cannot wait for you to learn about this. So we had the real pleasure of having Dr. Thomas Stedding join us here on Messy and Magnificent. Dr. Stedding has been the CEO of over 12 high-tech companies. He also has this really active interest in depth psychology. He's on the board of trustees at the Pacifica Graduate Institute and a co-founder and member of the board of directors of the Academy of Imaginal Arts and Science. And he really focuses on the convergence of advanced technology and depth psychology. And in a moment, you're going to see why that is so particularly relevant to today's conversation. So back in 2000, Dr. Stedding was the co-author of a book called Built on Trust, How to Gain Competitive Advantage in Any Organization. Well, he just came out with a new book called Real Teams Win, What Smart Leaders Need to Know Now About Achieving Peak Performance. It just came out this month, December of 2020. And what he shares in that book, when I had the opportunity to read it a couple months ago, is profoundly relevant to what we talk about here on Messy and Magnificent. 
He talks about how the hierarchical leadership model, it's increasingly obsolete. Now, this really reminds me of a study that was done the University of Simmons and Harvard a few years ago. They teamed up and they did this study in a kind of binary way between two genders, people who identify as male and people who identify as female, to see what their relationship to power and influence was. And it was no surprise that regardless of gender identity, everybody wanted an equal amount of power, or at least that was no surprise to me and the women that I work with. But was really interesting was the way that the different genders go about stepping into power. So when they interviewed the men, the way they saw power was more hierarchical in nature, as in one person has a boss who has a boss who has a boss, and the goal is to be the top boss, the top dog. When they interviewed women, they were much more lateral in nature. It was the sense of when one of us rises, we all rise together. And the way they went about achieving power was to be in community and connected to one another. Now, this makes complete sense as we watch what is becoming increasingly more effective in our new economy, this idea of being the solo hero, of being the top dog, the one with the weight on your shoulders, not only is it not lead to our best performance, but it's not sustainable anyway. And so you're going to hear in a moment Dr. Stedding talk about what is more effective, how you can spot any of those solo hero behaviors creeping in and what works better. But he doesn't stop there. (laughs) He also talked about how emotional intelligence is important, but it's really emotional integrity that is setting leaders apart right now and what that looks like so that you can begin to recognize leadership dysfunction. Whether that's within yourself as you're leading yourself through your own day or your own team, or just spotting it in the leaders around you. Because there is some very specific, what he calls mindset malware, meaning flaws, bugs that get into our thought process that cause us to no longer work with the same level of team building that is really essential these days. And then we've got a special portion of the show for all my empathetic listeners out there. If you are empathetic by nature, I want you to tune in and keep your ears open for the empathy challenge that Dr. Stedding is going to throw down during this episode. This is definitely for you. And if you are not empathetic by nature, if that doesn't come to you easily and you're noticing that you butt heads with people or it's really hard to get along with certain folks, I think you're really going to like what Dr. Setting shares. Expect to walk away from this episode with a new vocabulary for the leadership traits within yourself and others that are successful these days and a blueprint for making sure that you don't have to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders anymore and that you can still be making progress while you enjoy the present moment. So before I switch over to our interview with Dr. Setting, I just want to pause for my favorite part of the show and give a shout out. And today I'm giving a shout out to you. What a year this has been for all of us on many levels. And yet here you are having this conversation that allows us to be messy and magnificent at the same time. And for that, I applaud you. So if you've left a review on iTunes, I appreciate that. That helps us show up in front of more women. And if you haven't yet, head on over and do just that right now, because then I can read that review and give you a shout out on an upcoming episode. 
We all rise well together. And with more on that, here is Dr. Tom Stedding. So Tom, welcome to Messy and Magnificent. Thank you so much for being here with us. No, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks very much for the opportunity. We have a lot of good things to cover. There's so many parts of your book that I cannot wait to jump into. But first, here's my initial question for you right out of the gate. And this really struck me when you and I had a conversation the other day, because when I look at your background on paper, I know you've got your master's in, in electrical engineering, then you went on and you got your master's in management. And I think of both of those fields as strategic, very focused, controlling outcome, trying to predict what's going to happen. And yet here you are writing a book and really developing a career based around trust and teamwork. And I don't always think of those two things happening you know, in the same world, that there's strategy and control and structure and, and trust and teamwork. And so I'm so curious, how did you get from an engineering and management mindset or focal study to a place of being so focused on trust and teamwork? It's a great question. It's one that I, it's difficult for me to address because it's sort of like looking in the mirror with a long gaze. I think my mother dropped me on my head. I think because I finally <laughs> decided at an early age, but she never confessed that. But I've always had a split set of interests. One is technical. When I did my PhD thesis at uh, Berkeley, I read all of Shakespeare and I just fell in love with Shakespeare. I ran across Jungian psychology at age 35 or so and fell in love with that. And so there's a, I had a good friend. She did her PhD at the Pacific Graduate Institute. She's a brilliant woman. And she kept telling me to tell my story. And I said, my story is really boring. I don't want to tell my story. And she, and she whacked me upside the head enough times. And I said, okay, I'll think about my story. Well, Kierkegaard says you live your life forward and you understand it in retrospect. And when I laid out my story, I said, oh, it makes sense. It actually makes ah. sense. And it's, it's a career in decade-long increments mm. because I'm a slow learner. It takes me <laughs> 10 years to figure something out. It's, it was looking deeper and deeper to find out what really works in leadership. And it's rather comical. So I started out at Stanford Research Institute, spin out a company would have, when I joined, had 85 employees and 65 PhDs, a pretty esoteric group working on optimal control. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought this is a way to be masters of the universe and make a difference. And then I realized that opt- neither optimal nor control are, are factors that are associated with leadership of people. Optimal is uh. to do people and control doesn't work. So 10 years later, they sent me to Stanford Sloan program. It was a wonderful 10-month mid-career program for executives in the school of business. And I was like a religious conversion. I discovered strategy and I thought, wow, now I understand how to really be master of the universe because I can do strategic stuff and figure out great strategies. And I did a lot of work. The British Petroleum bought our company. I was became part of a 3000 professional group of seven operating companies. And I became the lead strategist for all that. And I made up all this. We figured out a lot of stuff, but then I said it kind of worked, but strategic skills are important, but they're, they passed the necessity test. Without it, you probably will fail, but flunk the efficiency test with strategy, you, you could not fail. So the problem was people. 
So you can, you know, create great strategies, but you rely on people to do it. And uh, unfortunately, there's that doesn't happen necessarily. There's just something else deeper going on. So then I got into operation. I, was, I took over a company with the actually annoying requirement that we actually get something done. And I sort of <laughs> came up with organizational schemes and innovators has hired a world famous product uh, project management expert, uh, another teamwork expert and so forth and got all this stuff. And, and we actually ended up, I ended up, ended up by writing a built book called Built on Trust based on my first startup, which was we created a, an, a culture based on values, a value-based mm-hmm. leadership. And it really worked. And people got excited about it. So it's not the project management stuff. It's not the operational control stuff. It started to get to something interesting. And people had a wonderful experience in that company. That was a privacy company. We put privacy in the map. We were considered to be the marketing gorilla of the internet within four months by the press. Got into the encryption controversy mm-hmm. and leadership role in that. And I wrote this book. But I still had this nagging sense of the book says, if you do this, it will work. And, and then I wonder, well, why people just don't do it. There's something deeper going on. And that's when I ran across my uh, uh, in the next decade of learning, a partner, Dr. Howard Teich, who's a San Francisco coach and psychotherapist who had some great ideas. We worked up some that really got to the deeper layers, worked up some concepts. And we, were, we worked on things I'll describe that are now in the book, but it, um, his focus is radical use of empathy mm. on eradicating idealized expectations which uh, we called cancer of the mind. We'll talk about that more in a minute. And getting to the hidden unacknowledged factors that influence outcome and rule them. If you have something at work under the surface that nobody is acknowledging, but it's present, it will have a disproportionate effect on, um, on outcome because right. it's not dealt with or acknowledged. Right. Okay, so let me see if I'm getting this right, if I'm following your train so far, because it sounded like you started with a focus on control, and then strategy was the next element of, okay, underneath this, maybe there needs to be an element of strategy. And then you realize, okay, we've got the strategy, but why aren't people doing the strategy? So then there was a deeper layer of, I want beginning to look at values and trust. And so it sounds like you continue to mine deeper into the soil. You continue to go a little bit farther behind each layer to get to the motivation. Yeah. And so it sounds like at this stage, you're in the layer of, of teamwork, that there's something there in terms of sustaining success. That's right. Teamwork and deeper than that. I think a way to describe this is in the context of the new leadership model. Let me back up a couple steps. The book title is Real Teams Win, and that's making a distinction between real teams and what you might call pretend or fake teams. Well, let's pause right there because that's what I want to know about. How do you delineate the difference between a real team and a fake team? That's exactly what this is all about. So it's a great question. For example, in my experience, I've run 13 startups. In some cases, they're from scratch, but a number of cases, you come in after it's been running for a couple of years. And you walk in the door and you say, what's going on? And they say, oh, we are a great team. And you look further and you discover that they really actually hate each other. They yeah. won't communicate. There are silos. Uh, there's them versus us. There's slippage and toxic gossip. 
That's a fake team. A real team is one that is uh, it's more of a network. The new model, the new leadership model is, is not the hierarchical machine model. The organization is machine metaphor that envisions the organization as a complex mechanism run by technical adept. It's uh, the old model completely ignores the inner life of the team. Yes. It is in the inner life of the team where the future competitive advantage lies. That's a powerful sentence. Hold on. I want to make sure I got that right. So it's in the, the future model of the team is where the competitive advantage lies. The inner life of the team is where we now think competitive advantage lies. It's in the connected team, what we call the connected team in the new leadership model, which is more of a network than in the hierarchy. The connections between the participants in the connected team are linkages that are deep communication paths in a high trust environment where people feel safe. It's built on the notion of psychological safety, but the book takes the whole topic further because it's a very subtle set of principles and practices to be able to set up this environment to encourage people to behave in a way that I just described, which is highly connected, safe, and therefore willing to be creative and to be open and to take a rest. What could that look like when you talk about creating an environment where people feel safe and they can express and they can have these deep paths of communication? What's an example of of one way that we create that? Well, the book spells it out. The book (laughs) is a full system for how to do that. Uh, It includes three principles four practices in a diagnostic model. The three principles, and and as Mike Nelson, who was a former Google vice president of global communications and public affairs, looked at the book, he said, it delves into the dynamics of leadership and teamwork and shows true leadership may not be what you think it is. Mm -hmm. So we are proposing something that's different than traditional leadership models, our leadership books and models will prescribe. There are three principles, get into this at at length, are complementarity, empathy, and non-attachment. Those are not terms that you're going to run across. (laughs) No, right. These are terms I feel like I hear when I read Greek mythology, when I read books on Buddhism, (laughs) like that's where, so, so tell me, I'm just so curious, what is influencing this path, these connections that you're making between our modern economy and, and also these really ancient principles and practices. I say somewhere, the book blends theories drawn from strategy, economics, neuroscience, organizational development, literature, psychology, and mythology. (laughs) There we go. In particular, the the book goes to the mythic layer. There are interludes of about 11 myths because myths are accounts of human nature, of who we are. And you can say, well, they're old stories and they're irrelevant. They're not. The myths are alive and well in the conference room today, those mythological figures. And if you understand them, that really helps understand what we're talking about. So that's just a. One of the myths that you shared was a myth of narcissists within mm-hmm. the book. And that was one that, that really caught my eye. And I'd be curious if you would be willing to explain why that myth? Why the myth of narcissists? And how is that related to what you're seeing inside, for example, the boardroom or the decision-making room? The fundamental idea in the book is that narcissism is at the base, at the root cause of dysfunctionality. 
Mm. And in fact, what we say is that to make teams work well requires surrender of the ego. It's an Ah. anti-narcissistic move. Now, to look at the myth of narcissists, the typical interpretation says, well, don't be conceited. But there's a deeper understanding of the myth, which is narcissists could not take input. So he ignored mm-hmm. requests. I mean, the whole thing with Echo, which is, you know, tragic conversation that happened. But he knew that he had a superior approach and intelligence and didn't need help from any, any quarter. The narcissistic move in the current leadership is often that they don't take input from the marketplace or most importantly from subordinates in the team. When you create the connected team with the open dialogue, with diplomatic immunity and an ethic of openness and embracing and celebrating the creativity of, the, of everybody in the team, including the small voice, there's very reluctant to speak up, but there are many stories about how the small voice in the room came up with an answer in there in the book, what nobody else thought of. So right. this is the anti-narcissistic move to allow input and to be able to consider it as a leader without your own bias being injected. There's a lot about dogmatism and mm. black and white thinking. Black and white thinking is the enemy of, of creative collaboration. I think like we talked about an example when we talked before. I had a VP of marketing, and we're having a conversation. She, she had to sit at the front of the conference room table, which told you something. I always sat it somewhere on the side of the table, but I didn't care. <laughs> and so we're having a conversation about some project. Which she's out of the table and says, you know, halfway through the discussion, we're not, we haven't reached a conclusion yet. But she pounded the table and said, we have to make a decision by September. Well, that's a dogmatic statement. When you make a dogmatic statement, when dogmatism enters the conversation, the dialogue stops. It kills collaboration. It kills creativity. So this thing about non-attachment, one of the principles, is that to let go of your biases and to move into the creative void, it's what Keats talks about negative capacity, to be comfortable in the unknown to allow for whatever comes up, to, for it to come up, and to honor it as it comes up. We called in this opposite of idealized expectations or idealized fantasies, where I've got a position that I think is the right thing by God, and I'm, you know, I'm going to hold on to this position no matter what. <laughs> we call that cancer of the mind. Mm. It's the cancer of the mind in terms of leadership. So that's what non-attachment, one of the three principles, is about. Non-attachment enables agility, enables creativity. So what is the gateway? Because I'll speak for myself as a recovering perfectionist. I'm pretty sure this is a lifelong recovery. (laughs) This isn't an overnight. (laughs) I've been working on this for a long time and there's still work to do. And what you're saying feels entirely true to me. This idea that we have to have some non-attachment and we have to, that leaves room for creative possibilities. For somebody who, and I'm curious if this ever, you know, brushed up, in your own experience for you, but what is the gateway for somebody who, who reads the book or who hears this concept and goes, you know what, I am being a little bit more dogmatic than I need to be, or I'm putting too much pressure on these arbitrary dates or however it's showing up. How does a person who's in that mindset start to make the shift into being even just 3% 
more comfortable with the unknown. How do we do that? Well, the way we do this is that we train the company. We train the team. It takes a few hours. We write uh, up a set of principles based on the training. And then you constantly refer back to it. And I like it to the game of Go, where you can learn the rules easy and take a lifetime to getting better at it. But it works. And people finally get the idea that they can speak up. I do a weekly all-hands meeting. People, when you've gone into a, a, you know, a team that's been abused in particular, they're, they're going to sit there quietly and they're not going to talk. But you right. can encourage them to speak up because you've identified this, these are the principles and practices we're committed to. This is the way we're going to do things. And they slowly get, you know, have a sense of safety and openness to that. I would say specifically empathy, maybe a radical kind of empathy. So we talk about, everybody talks about empathy. Few people talk about how to do empathy. The book talks about how to do empathy. My own experience was my partner beat me over the head and shoulders until I showed, demonstrated empathy. And I, when I finally said, Oh, you mean I have to listen to what you say too? Um, <laughs> you know, I actually have to consider your point of view. And I, when I got to that and I, and I actually developed empathy, it was like a revelation because suddenly I no longer felt defensive and attached to my point of view, but rather open up to what's really going on and to see it clearly and to work with it. I say in the book, I went completely native at that point. Yeah. I complete transformation. But it was Howard's insistence on uh, that, my, that I do that, that changed the way I think. You know, that absolutely changed the ground that I sit on today. In every conversation, that's my habit now. And it's so much easier to be in a, in a collaboration or a relationship if you're working from that perspective. So that's one of the three principles. That's another well, one. That, and that makes complete sense to me because it sounds like the gateway to non-attachment is empathy. Like there it is. Right. And as you described the transformative experience that you had in realizing I don't have to control this. I don't have to dictate this. I can listen well and get the other person's perspective. That's fascinating to me that empathy would be at the root of good business. And you took it a step further in the book. And this was, I actually... I broke the rules and I jumped around in different orders because the titles for the it's different okay. chapters are so gripping. There were certain ones I thought I have to read this one right now, even though it's <laughs> not in order. But there was a specific section in the book that was particularly moving to me because you drew the connection between empathy and marketing. Oh, yeah. Which is not something that I always think about being on the same, you know, the same line right. of thought. And so I'm so curious in your own words, what is the connection between marketing and empathy? It's fairly straightforward when you think about it. If marketing is to de determine what customers want, you first have to understand what their point of view is. Without your mm -hmm. attachment, the, the, the alternative in high tech is that we will do a startup and we're going to create a solution that everybody's just got to have without asking anybody whether they really <laughs> want to have it. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That's an idealized uh, fantasy. And you can spend a lot of money going on that path. Yes. yes. There's another connection about empathy. that There's a process in the book that I think could be life-changing across the globe. It's called Empathy Challenge. 
And in this one, two people get together and agree to have a conversation and they may know that they disagree violently at the outset. One person is allowed complete download. The other person encourages it, doesn't interrupt, doesn't, you know, get defensive, lets the other person completely go. Then the second person, this is where empathy, radical empathy comes in. The second person says something about what the person just said that they can agree with. <sighs> now, that is experienced by the second person as a defeat of the ego because you just give up ground. I, I trained under General Patton. General Patton Jr. presented me the award in armor school. And General Patton said, never give up real estate. This gives up real estate. Mm. The, other, the first person experiences that as being seen and heard. One of the top four requirements for leadership for people is to feel uh, seen and heard. Right. So suddenly, and that, then you switch roles and you do the same thing. You end up with a system in which both parties have both points of view in their, in their head side by side. The magic is, and you don't end up at agree to disagree, which is stupid, or, you know, (laughs) you're not allowed to use the word, but when you train people, the hardest thing they'll tell you is how they have to stop using the word, but, but then there's a synthesis that happens to find a third path. It's empathy, but it's challenged too. There's, you challenge the other person to stay in the process and to show up in this discussion and show up and deal with this issue today, that's the challenge part. So it's it's complementarity. It's both and. Empathy and challenge together. Well, you know, we appreciate that a lot here, this complementarity. That's the whole premise of the show, right? The idea that messy and magnificent. And it's just the concept that most of us as adults are capable of being more than one thing at once. I love that. Right. Yeah, we say, but then we we fragment ourselves or we fragment the thought. Now we're being pulled in multiple directions and and being a unifier. So as you're describing this process, which for anybody listening in right now, part of what I really enjoy about the book is that you give these very pragmatic experiments to try. You give actual tools, like here's the concept and here's what you can go do with it so that you can actually give it a whirl. But as you describe this process of radical empathy, it's all about unity. Right? It's all about finding, finding some common ground, some place where there's a reason to connect or agree, and then, exactly. and then build from there. The other thing is to help people stay comfortable in the unknown and to have confidence that the process will go somewhere that will be new, creative, and useful. So you want more free time, some space to think. You know, everything would be so much easier if you just had a little more wiggle room in your days. By golly, I hear ya. So let's talk about my favorite B word for a second. Boundaries. 14 years of coaching has shown me that there is a direct correlation for women between how much time and energy you have to get to the things you really care about and the types of boundaries you're setting. But... Nobody has taught us to set boundaries in a way that feels good. And that's why this episode is brought to you by the Boundary Academy. This is my forthcoming at-home study course that's going to give you both the tools and the community support to make having boundaries both doable and downright enjoyable. 
I'll make sure to let you know when it's available. So get on the list by heading over to carlyfane.com and get totally free access to the mini Boundaries Like a Boss course. There is nothing for sale in this 45-minute program that outlines the three essential mindsets that women with boundaries know. And it comes with a step-by-step guidebook that will allow you to have the script to upgrade your boundaries on the spot, even when people push back on them. You know that hunch you've had for a long time that you're meant to do something meaningful in the world? It's right. Let's make sure that you get to do just that. Well, this reminds me of what you were talking about very early on, just in your own process, that you're suggesting that we sign up for a process, that it's not a quick fix. This isn't a life hack. This isn't a, you know, take a one hour workshop and everything is supposed to be rainbows and unicorns. Oh, yeah, right. but there really right. is this dedicated willingness to show up for this, to consistently remind ourselves of something like practicing empathy until it becomes more natural. But that this is really a process that we allow to unfold gently rather than white knuckle gripping to force, you know, something happening. Yeah. Well, you gave a great example of that in the book when you talked about the story of NASA in terms of the alternative to this. So this is what great, good communication involves empathy. Can you give folks a little bit about the story of NASA and what not great communication can look like in that example? Yeah, there's uh, the, the post-crash investigation, and there were several instances of this, got to the head of who ran the program, and they interviewed her about it. They asked her, because what was going on in NASA was that people hated the culture mm. because you couldn't speak up and you couldn't, nobody's listening to you. There were warnings in the email about what happened in the crash in advance. And they asked her... Um, there was, a, we had to read the account in the book, but um, questions that were presented to her got her to a point where she couldn't explain. She, she assumed that she would know what was going on and they asked her, well, how would you know? And she didn't have an answer. <laughs> so it was very clear this, this leadership style did not work. So it's a, it's a very interesting, a very tragic instance of dysfunctionality. Well, I think that's a, because it is a more extreme example, because we're talking in that situation about life and death circumstances. But I also think of all the the smaller examples that build up over time and what they do to our, our well-being if we're working in a place where we chronically feel stifled. Or to be on the flip side, because it sounds to me, and you tell me if I'm getting this correct, but when we look at the outdated model of leadership, a lot of what you are speaking to leads into this concept that we talk about a lot here in Messy Magnificent of that popular isolation, where if you're the leader, you're supposed to be the solo hero, and you're supposed to be brilliant and a genius and have all the answers and always know what to say or else. And what you're talking about here sounds a lot more like there's a leveling out of the playing field, that nobody needs to be the isolated, perfect superhero, that there's much more of of a collaboration. And so I appreciate that whether you're the person reporting to the boss or you're the boss who's listening right now, that this idea of radical empathy connects us all so that none of us are feeling isolated in a sea of people. The book joins the course of discrediting the solo hero model. There are other people saying it's obsolete and it doesn't work. And we are I'm emphatically behind that perspective. Actually, I access the, the story of Hercules, who's 
might be the mythic figure of the solo hero and show that he's actually kind of a dodo. He did <laughs> stupid things. And it took Athena. Now, this for your feminine audience. There's a huge focus on Athena as a absolutely spectacular model for uh, complementary leadership and effective both and leadership. She she saved Hercules on multiple occasions. Interesting that people don't talk about that. Mm-hmm. But somebody, the hero in this in this story is really Athena, not Hercules. the The other thing is um, that we talk about. If I can. I love this conversation because it's all over the map. <laughs> no, but there's a thread here. The creative, I'm, I'm, the creative process. That's just it. I, like I'm, I'm. There's a thread here because all the pieces are beginning to come together. I'm seeing how even you know, and when we look at your life story or your career path, anyway, and there's all these seemingly different, you know, decade long modules that you went through, and yet they were all leading from one to the next to the next. And I think that what we're having here is so important because. Because we're not constricting the conversation. We're allowing, you know, what what flows to, to be there. And it- it's much more interesting. <laughs> I did, <laughs> just back to this leadership in depth or journey in depth issue, there are a couple of things to mention. One's this idea of the mindset layer. In high tech, for example, it took quite a while for culture to, to be recognized as important. And everybody now says, Culture, they've got to the point where they say culture eats strategy for lunch. And that's true. So you can imagine a system where you've got strategy at the top. Below that is this culture layer, which you might right. define as the de facto practices and behavior between people on the team. You know, do they trust each other? Do they, are they, they communicate openly? Are they truthful and all that kind of stuff? And that, that's true, although a lot of people in high tech talk about the importance of culture, but they don't know how to talk about it. And I can tell you some fairly hilarious stories about how people define culture and you, it'll curl your hair. <laughs> but mostly it's about pizza for Friday lunch and um, we don't do politics and we go for it, and all that kind of stuff. Completely non-actionable. But nonetheless, culture is regarded as important. We say there's a layer below it. It's called mindset. And mindset uh, is the uh, the de facto rules of thought or behavior uh, between the ears of the leader. So this is the internal reality, not the external reality. We're now moving to the inner life of the team, the inner life right. of the leadership. That is so important. We now say mindset eats culture for breakfast. <laughs> you cannot talk about culture without first talking about mindset. And there are four dimensions, there are four archetypal dimensions of mindset. They are awareness, agility, relatedness, and courage. Mm. We've used these four dimensions to assess the quality of the mindset of the leadership for more than a decade, and they're very accurate and complete. In fact, if you can score how you are on these four dimensions, you will predict in forecast the level of, of success going forward. It, it's, this could become a very powerful diagnostic. Furthermore, every dimension has an intellectual and emotional component, this complementarity. So intellectual agility is to say, watch the marketplace and your product roadmap and so forth. Now, I've gone through this where you say, oh, the conditions have changed the marketplace. We have to change direction. And you turn on a dime and you have a new product roadmap. That's intellectual agility. Right. Emotional agility is somebody comes to you with a point of view that you disagree with, 
but you're open to hearing that other person's point of view and respond to it appropriately and work with it. That's emotional agility. Then there's this idea of the inferior dimension, which is you can be strong in mind, in courage. Well, the examples I know, courage, awareness, agility, and that in, in relatedness, that's the inferior dimension. That is where dysfunctionality comes into the system. It's a gateway for poor performance. And I can give you a lot of examples. I am curious about this because you kind of showed your nature in that. I know you've worked for 13 startups you've worked with now and, and a lot of them being tech startups. And in the book, you, you talked about mindset malware. When I saw the word malware, I thought, okay, this is a tech person. <laughs> this person knows tech. So as you talk about the mindset layer and the, and the things that are important indicators of what makes a good mindset, how do we keep an eye out for that mindset malware? How do we, how do we spot what's dysfunctional thinking? If you think about those four dimensions and continue to assess the state of the system against those four, you will detect where they're failing and where they're failing, you will find them all where creeping in. That's your spam filter. And it sounds like then the approach would be that this is something that you check in with again consistently. So you're going to check at these four dimensions consistently. I, cause I, I appreciate the, the phrase you just used. It's as if it sneaks in because these dysfunctional thought patterns can sneak in there and we might not be aware that they're becoming ingrained. And so just like we would run a clean out on our operating system on our desktop computer, we also want to do the occasional clean out and just make sure that our thoughts are up, up to snuff there. Yeah, it's uh, one example is in the book about a couple that took over. They had actually gone through $32 million of investment. They were courageous. They're going after a new market in a new way. They worked pretty well as a team. They have you know, done things well in the past, but they lack courage. And then they were stuck. They could not make a product decision for nine months. They were stuck. That cost, that's, that's contributed to the, you know, the ineffective use of $32 million. Right. But it cost them um, delay in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And we got in there. I was working with my partner, Howard, then. And we worked with them through this process I just described. And we solved the problem in 20 minutes. <laughs> The problem was that the VP of product, who was a woman, and the VP of technical support, who was a man, hated each other. And they wouldn't give in. So we went through this empathy challenge process, and they arrived at uh, an agreement. And and then we designated, that's the other thing, it's complementary twinning. It's another practice in the book. Where you can engineer that. We actually identified, we said, you will now be, you are now twins. People don't like that term, but we used it anyway because we like it. So twinning means that you're going to check in every day. You're going to cover each other's back. You're going to tell each other's truth. You're going to hold each other accountable. You're going to be operated as twins. And they actually fell in love in the process. That was so, more than we were looking for, but right, an added bonus, an added bonus. But <laughs> but the, but there it is. There's that pathway from the the solo hero, the isolated leader, exactly. to the empathy challenge, leading back to back to connection. And what I appreciate about the way you're describing this type of empathy and this twinning model is that it's not just about being a yes person. 
it doesn't sound like it's just about cheering. It's also about accountability, checking in. Did you do that thing you said you were going to do? Are you being courageous? And you go a little deeper than this in the book, because as you explain emotional agility, you talk briefly about some of the research that's been done around emotional intelligence. But you also describe how, or I shouldn't say but, I'm going to use the word and, and. (laughs) And and, and it always works. (laughs) Yeah, and you take it another layer deeper because you describe how emotional intelligence is important, but emotional integrity is really what we need right now. When you say emotional integrity, what do you mean, Tom? I just loved, I ran across this guy, John Beebe, who wrote a book called Integrity in Depth. He makes the point that integrity is typically a fairly dry topic, business ethic and so forth. He, want, he took a psychological point of view. He said integrity, staying in integrity is a process, and you have to check it constantly. And the control signal is anxiety. When you are experiencing anxiety, go check where you come out of integrity. And the benefit of being in integrity is joy. Mm. It's a wonderful treatment. It's a lovely idea. Well, yeah. Uh, I lo- what, I, what I love about this is that should we be feeling anxiety? It's not the sign that something's wrong with you. Anxiety is kind of the built-in alert system that, ooh, I've drifted right. from my, from my exactly. integrity. Right? It's and so it's really alert. kind of a, exactly. we can almost welcome it in that sense of, oh, I'm feeling anxious. Oh, I'm feeling anxious. Okay, wait a minute. What might be out of integrity here? Where am I? Yeah, where are my right. actions yeah. and my beliefs not matching? Uh, here, here's a simple, uh, almost trivial example. One of the rules in the four practices we haven't talked about the four practices, but there's an art form there in the book from trying to do these things: communication, collaboration, um, closure, and commitment. Uh, one of the rules is the 24-hour rule. The 24-hour rule is simple rule. Says you get back to somebody in 24 hours. Now, that doesn't mean you have to go. So you get a, somebody gets calls you and wants to talk about something and you don't really want to deal with that. But you get back to them and say, I can't talk now, but call me back in three months. You've now, you've satisfied the 24-hour rule. Ah. I can failure to adhere to the 24-hour rule, like not taking a shower in the morning. At 36 hours, 48 hours, I'm feeling uncomfortable. It's really important to me. I have to go back. And and make that response in order to and that's the control about uh, the control signal that's coming into me saying you forgot to get back to that person you didn't respond to that email you got out that voicemail don't leave that person hanging at least get you know close the loop back right so that's an example of how this might work uh, that is so relatable to me because I think of each of those things when there's something that we haven't closed the loop that those are energy leaks. Those are little leaks throughout the day. When then I'm driving in my car and I think, oh, shucks, I didn't call so-and-so back. And if I'm driving and I can't do anything about it, then it, then it's in the back of my brain taking up space while I'm trying to go about the rest of the day. And so this also sounds like a practice in both reclaiming our integrity and reclaiming our energy and our focus exactly. so that we're plugging exactly. these little broken loops. We're mending them. Yeah. We described the... Um complete implementation of what's in the book is a sealed container. And if you don't have complete implementation, you have leakage. And leakage is in the form of gossip, slippage, you know, disappointment, et cetera, et cetera. I'm curious then, if we look at anxiety as being a symptom of being called back to integrity, 
So if anxiety is really an invitation back to integrity, then are things like gossip and slippage, are they really a call back to closing a loop or tending to your container? They are. They are symptoms of, of the failure to you know, adhere to the principles. I'm a particularly, I'm a, a particular, I'm a rabid opponent of uh, toxic gossip. I hate gossip, and I think it's just very. Just I fired somebody because that person could not stop. I I warned that person. You're gossiping. We can't. I've said we're not going to have a system in which she was an important person, but I I fired that person because of gossip. Because it's that important to yeah. the health of a team that you it's not there. You can't, afford, you can't afford to have somebody on the team like that. So here's the question you and I were pondering earlier, which is when we look at emotional integrity and we look at things like courage and agency and this radical empathy, all of these things that make for better leaders and better teams. Why do you think that some of the leaders who are getting a lot of public attention right now still persist leading poorly? Why do you think some of these outdated models are, are still happening? A lot in the in the high tech uh, venture world, it's because the investors valued charisma, action, strength, dogmatism, a bunch of factors that they thought led to high performance. We're moving into a new world where those are not the critical dimensions of leadership. Somebody asked me why, what I want to do with this book, and I said, start a revolution. I would amend that. To say join the revolution because it's happening slowly. There are intimation in the book. There are intimations of the new leadership model that's showing up in different quarters. One of them is this book, Thirteeners, which I like a lot. He says thirteen percent of the companies they look at actually use open collaborative approach. What we're talking about, eighty-seven mm-hmm. percent don't. They will fail, and the thirteen percent will wow. will um, be successful. So that's a you know tells you something about. If you read Team of Teams, General McChrystal, who actually is a, a colleague of General Abizade, who was on my board and became a friend, he completely overhauled the culture. And he ended up, he said, his role was simply to ask good questions. The system <laughs> worked. He had all hands meeting with 3,000 people every day. Anybody could say anything. He opened up the whole culture and it turned it into a whole different, more, much more effective fighting organization. Whereas it's failing before. See, as a coach, that makes complete sense to me because it's my job to just ask good questions. It's not my job when I'm in a one-on-one session with somebody to spout advice or yap the whole time. Because that stuff, I mean, I would hope, Tom, between you and I, that I would say something helpful over the course of an hour. But that's not lasting, right? Our aha moments, the moments where we get to hear our own wisdom, that's where something shifts. That's where something sticks. And so what I appreciate so much about this model of leadership that you've done so much research on and now are making more accessible is that it strengthens the team and it also strengthens each person within the team. And I can see how if a person has more agency at work, that that seeps into the rest of your life too, that you might feel more agency when you're home as well. We don't, as in the case with the previous book, Build on Trust, we don't talk about its its implications for personal life, but they're clearly there. We just didn't right. want to have Frank create an overly broad scope for the book. Absolutely. But you can take this, it, it would change your life. Empathy has changed my life. 
I believe that. And I hope you come back one day and do a whole nother conversation just on empathy with us, because I think oh, this God. is rich and needed. But I'm curious, would you be willing to do our two-way Q&A before we wrap up here? Oh, Tom? sure. Certainly. All right. So here's my first question for you. Tom, if you came with a warning label, what might it say? <laughs> Watch out. I'm going to change your perspective on the world in a way that you're going to be uncomfortable with and then find revolutionary. Are you ready for the journey? <laughs> I'm going to collapse decades into minutes with you and uh, save you a lot of time fumbling around like I did. But are you up for that? Because it's not going to be something you've done before. Your honesty about how this is the real work that this is the challenge, I think is really important that a lot of us who are in leadership positions, we're actually very comfortable with the long hours or going the extra mile. That's actually our comfort zone. And I think for a lot of leaders, the real work is the internal work that you're talking about. That's where we're actually challenged, the slowing down, the listening. That's the real work that takes us outside of our comfort zone and is so rewarding if we, if we dare makes the leadership job so much easier because there's so much the, your connected team is much smarter than you are. They're going to come up with it better. I remember this. I'd use this. I would walk into my executive staff meeting on a Monday morning and say, you know, I'm a little worried about this. So maybe we should do this. And I knew it was a stupid idea. And I'd, I'd turn them loose and they would just, you know, they're like fresh meat and they would just chomp on this <laughs> thing and come back with something which much better than I ever <sighs> came up with. So then ra rather than having to rattle around in your own brain going in circles, you had the courage, because I do believe it's courage in a culture where traditionally leadership was taught that you better do it by yourself. You had the courage to say, hey, help me work this out. You're not the solo hero. Mm. Not the solo hero. So good. Okay, so here's, here's what I want to know. Based on our conversation, Tom, what's one question that you would love to ask the women listening? What do you want to know from them? I want to know, what is your experience in, in your leadership aspirations and, and what keeps you back? Mm. What do you find to be difficult? What is your experience and what keeps you back? Yeah. 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 What are you struggling with? I'd, I'd really love to have that conversation. So we encourage anybody listening, post that with a screenshot of this episode or put that in your iTunes review so that Tom and I can see that and continue to be in conversation around, around these points. Because I think, especially when we talk about this solo hero, so many of us are trying to do it all ourselves. And this is a yeah. great way of practicing what Tom is talking about, which is daring to say, hey, I'd love a little help figuring this thing out. <laughs> like, oh, hey, yeah. Right? How do I not do this all by myself? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You're not, you're not alone. <laughs> no. So here's my last question for you, Tom. Even if other people disagree, what is one thing that you know to be true? Oh, boy. That's a mean only one. <laughs> <laughs> well, next time you come back, we'll ask you again. Give us how, how many things did I do? Not sure I know. <laughs> There's a diversity, equity, inclusion movement in which we examine your attitude. And I, in response to that, have said, we're all the same. 
across cultures. Fundamentally, the fundamentally deep level, our humanity is the same across across cultures. We're all the same. That's something I I believe fervently. So, yeah. And yeah. Uh, across genders, we're all the same. So at our core level, there's common at ground. Level. And so there's common the empathy ground. challenge, right? Right. There. Right. There's the call to empathy. If we're all the same, why can't we meet up and figure things out together? So. Mm. Well, there we go. No wonder you would you would write the book. Real teams win. Then <laughs> there's <laughs> the there's the call for taking that global. Tom, thank you so much for being here with uh, us. Thank you. It's so it was great conversation. I enjoyed it immensely, and I look forward to staying in touch. So. My goodness, so many of the subjects individually that Dr. Stedding brought up here could be its own show. It is a lot to take in. Thank goodness we recorded it. But what I want to walk away with with you is that brave and bold question that he asked us. What is your experience in your leadership aspirations and what keeps you back? Meaning, what do you find to be difficult or sticky or tricky? I want to have that conversation with you. I hope that you'll write about that in your iTunes review, or you'll post that on social media when you share a screenshot of this episode, or send me a private message. And the same goes for Tom. I'll make sure that we put a link to how to contact him on LinkedIn in the show notes. And I cannot speak highly enough about his new book, Real Teams Win. We'll also put a link for how you can access that in the show notes. But you're being offered an opportunity here to do the courageous thing and practice what Tom is talking about, to remove the cape of the solo hero that I know I have worn for far too long, and to be in a community that has your back with me. So remember, this is just the beginning of the conversation. Tell me what gets in the way of you leading and having the agency you want in your career, health, and relationships, and we'll take it from there. Remember... You thrive through nourishment, not punishment. Keep taking care of what you value, including the sense of community that gives you life. And I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Messy and Magnificent podcast and being part of this dynamic, life-giving community of women. I consider each episode part of a lifelong conversation of you and me hanging out, sipping tea together, making sure that all women become richer, more nourished, and able to keep on rising. So I'll see you on the next episode next week. But in the meantime, don't forget to head over to carlyfane.com forward slash podcast to get the full show notes. And I've also got some extra special free resources for driven women over there that you won't find anywhere else. 